Coming up next is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. On tonight's program, exercising can be a lifelong benefit for teens. If you exercised as both an adolescent and an adult, you had a 20% decrease in risk of all-cause mortality, 17% decrease in cardiovascular disease, and 13% decrease in cancer mortality. Plus, is dyslexia a learning disability or a learning difference? Once we recognize that a child is having difficulty with reading and writing, we need to find other ways of communicating information. And can your job lead you into a cancer diagnosis? Even though people may think uh, that this is something that disappeared in the United States a long time ago, people continue to be exposed to asbestos. We'll learn what to do when an older person suffers a fall and hear a piece from our healing muse. And that's all coming up right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On tonight's show, we'll examine if dyslexia is a true learning disability or simply a learning difference. Plus, we'll take another look at the question, can your job give you cancer? But first, the lifelong benefits of exercise for teens. While the health research literature is full of findings touting the benefits of exercise, everything from feeling better to having more energy and perhaps even living longer. But some new research suggests that the age at which you begin to exercise may lead to lifelong benefits. Here with more on all of this is Dr. Carol Sames, exercise physiologist and the director of the Vitality Fitness Program at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Carol. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Linda. So you and I have talked many times about the benefits of regular exercise, whether it's boosting brain power to feeling better overall. But this new study is suggesting that the age at which you begin to exercise may have a strong impact on health outcomes. Help us understand that. Tell us about it. What is this study? So this study was actually the Shanghai Women's Health Study. It was a a long-term, what we call prospective study. They were following these women who were ages 40 to 70 over time. And so one of the things that they wanted to look at was how much exercise these women did when they were an adolescent, ages 13 to 19. So adolescent exercise has been looked at before, but specifically it's been looked at more in terms of obesity. So we know that children that are overweight as children tend to be overweight as adults. And a lot of the research is focused on obesity. A little bit of research is focused on breast cancer and looking at activity of adolescent girls. But this study, really the purpose of it was to look to see if there was an association of adolescent exercise and cancer, cardiovascular disease, and all-cause mortality. So bottom line, what, what they were trying to see is if your behaviors or if your habits, healthy habits, started in adolescence, if that could be linked in any way to what your long-term health outcomes were. Right, when you were an older adult. As an older adult. Exactly. So what did they, how did, first of all, how did they go about doing this? Well, of course, if you get an individual who's already 40 years old, you're going to have to do some type of recall. So they did an activity recall and basically asked these women, when you were between the ages of 13 and 19, tell us, what were you doing? And so they needed to kind of define exercise. And and the way they defined it was exercising more than one time per week for more than three continuous months. So at the end of the study, one of the issues is that, you know, more than one time a week is certainly very minimal. It doesn't even really hit the minimal guidelines. So So it makes you question a little bit the findings. And and we, and we're going to talk even, there are some other <clears throat> potential issues with the way the study was carried out. Right. But basically, they were attempting to, to, to um, adjust for certain things so that, explain that. Right. So when, when you do these long-term studies, I mean, things happen over time. So you need to do these adjustments. You need to make sure that you're adjusting for other variables that might impact your study. So for instance, um, one of the things that they adjusted um, 
on the adolescent side was they wanted to know uh, food-wise what the young women were what their diet they were was. adolescents. They wanted to know their approximate height and weight so they could determine a body mass index. Um, they also wanted to know if they had participated in, in any sports type teams. Um, from the adult side, obviously we would also want to look at body mass index. We'd want to look at height and weight. We'd also want to look to see if there's any chronic diseases that had developed you know, after the age of 40. And because there was follow-up every two to three years with these women, you would be able to see who is developing cardiovascular disease. Do I have a new diagnosis? They also wanted to look at things controlling for, you know, hypertension, socioeconomic status. Um, we certainly know that individuals that tend to um, make more money tend to be healthier. So in total, though, with, with all of these um, adjustments, right. what did they actually find? So basically what they found was they, they looked at the women and they looked at adolescent exercise only, and then when they became adults, they stopped, and then they looked at the combined women who had exercised when they were adolescents and adults, um, obviously thinking that exercise would be much more robust if I had exercised from adolescent through All the my way current through. age, right? Yeah. And so what they found was that if you exercised as both an adolescent and an adult, you had a 20% decrease in risk of all-cause mortality, 17% decrease in cardiovascular disease, and 13% decrease in cancer mortality. And that's really significant. And when you look at all the controls, it makes the study fairly robust. So it does suggest then I mean, there is, the, it, it can be seen as proof for the most part that beginning early in life or in adolescence and, and maintaining that all through life really can affect long-term health outcomes. It certainly is a strong association. And when they looked at the women who only exercised as adolescents and then didn't exercise as adults, they actually found that there was a decreased risk of adult cancer, cardiovascular disease, and all-cause mortality, not as strong as if I would have continued to exercise in a, as an adult, but there was still almost a dose response wow. as an adolescent. So there was, some, there was some benefit to be had, but maybe not as, as strong, strong Which would make sense when we, when we look at the mechanisms of why exercise can be beneficial. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen here along with exercise physiologist Dr. Carol Sames. We're talking about the importance of exercise in adolescents in affecting health outcomes. What were some of, you mentioned earlier a little bit about what some of the potential pitfalls of the way they did it. They did um, retrospective questionnaires, people trying to recall what they did as children or as adolescents. What other problems did you, were there in the study as well? So, I mean, obviously the big one is always going to be recall. <laughs> Most of us, um, when we recall, um, there can be inaccuracies. Um, you also have the actual structure of the questionnaire, so the way the questions are worded. Um, from the dietary uh, questionnaire, there was only 19 questions that they asked, so that's a little bit challenging. So the self-reporting yeah. and the nature of the questions is part of it, but also, did they not under, did they underestimate other things, other activity as right. well? Right. So in terms of looking at activity, they really phrase the activity questions based on more sport participation. So they didn't include things like, say I ride my bike to school. To, you know, I have a two-mile ride there and back, or I'm walking to school. Right. So all of those non, what we would consider sport participation, but still activity. Um, maybe uh, I, I, I worked and my family had a small garden or a small farm, and I did that on the weekend. So all of that activity was we weren't excluding. We weren't, weren't capturing correct. all of that. But nevertheless, even with all of that, and even with the issue of recall, <clears throat> the findings that you just described – did lean very heavily toward early adolescent um, engaging in adolescent exercise. Right, does definitely have some strong impact. Whether you do it all through life or not, it's Correct. having some impact. Correct. So, do we know what the mechanisms are that were responsible for those findings? I mean, well, certainly just, when we when we think about the benefits of being active. Okay, so lower body mass index. Right. So when we talk about gaining weight, we start to then run into the, the myriad of increased risk of type 2 diabetes, certainly risk for cardiovascular disease, um, increased hypertension, another risk for cardiovascular disease, um, increased bad cholesterol, another risk for cardiovascular disease. Um, 
so certainly the three of them together. Also, the fact that exercise can reduce inflammatory yeah. response. Obesity-related cancers exactly. as well. Exactly. So all to do with weight and things that basically are sequelae or consequences of being overweight. Right. And they also mentioned, and this is very true, individuals, uh, you know, if you talk about adolescence as the period in time at which we're really laying the foundation for healthy behaviors, you know, future adult behaviors. So if you're going to be active, chances are you're not going to smoke. You're probably not going to drink to excess. And again, that has been demonstrated to be beneficial in, in later life in terms of reducing But what's alarming risk. is that currently, according to the CDC, um, <clears throat> there's only one quarter of high school students are meeting the CDC's recommended 60 minutes of exercise daily. And to me, that's of concern. I mean, what do you think can be done to encourage more of this? Major concern. Um, I, I think from a, 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 the standpoint, well, first of all, you have physical education that's getting cut out of schools. All right. Um, we have a, a strong emphasis on sport participation, and I think that will turn off a lot of children. I'm, I'm not competitive. You know, I think we have to do a better job of looking at lifestyle and leisure activities um, that, that students find interesting. Um, so th now, this study was of girls. Do you yes. think we need to repeat a study of this to look at boys and men as well? It certainly would be interesting because we, we absolutely know that cardiovascular disease does actually affect more women than men, but we more also know cardiovascular more, disease affect there's more women that die from cardiovascular oh, really? disease than That's men. That's changed. Yes, and you know, for years we didn't... It was the other of, way around. Exactly. So... Um, and there is different patterns, so I absolutely think that um, this should be looked at in, in, in you know young men population. So this this work is very important for all the reasons that you said, and for the fact, <clears throat> excuse me, that a lot of adolescents today are not as physically active as could be helpful to their long term health benefits. Right. And as you said, with cutting out things, you know, in in harder times, budgetary times, they cut out things like physical education it really makes you pause for thought and realize that how much more important it is for us to get exercise on the ticket. Right. I mean, you know I always say bodies were meant to move you know, right. at any age. Well, thanks so much for coming in and clarifying this study for us. I think it's, it's helpful information. The question is, how do we then put it into practice? So, Absolutely. as always, that's the concern and, and, the, and the, you know, requirement, basically. Thanks so much for coming in. My guest has been Dr. Carol Sames. She's an exercise physiologist, and she's the director of the Vitality Fitness Program at Upstate Medical University. Next up, is dyslexia a true learning disorder or simply a learning difference? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Developmental dyslexia represents one of the most common problems affecting children and adults in the United States. The prevalence of dyslexia is estimated to range from 5 to 17 percent of school-aged children, with as many as 40 percent of the entire population reading below grade level. But what exactly is this problem, and is it a true disability or simply another way of learning? Here with more on this is Dr. George Starr. He's Emeritus Clinical Professor of Pediatrics at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Starr. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. So let's begin by defining what we mean when we say dyslexia. What exactly is it? It's difficulty with the reading and writing process, uh, spelling, uh, those areas of, of information transmission. In people who would otherwise, you would assume, their language skills from on an apparent level, seem to be developing With otherwise normal normally. Uh, intelligence, yes. <clears throat> so it's, it's, it seems like it's one of the most common problems and carefully studied of the so-called learning disabilities, but is it truly a primary problem in and of itself? Tell us more about your understanding of what you think it is now. I believe it's related to uh, family inheritance, and we see families where reading and writing skills are poor, 
And the way I think about it is about uh, thinking about the origins of language in human beings. We've been on the planet for close to three million years, but we've only had spoken language, the ability to uh, name things and, and talk about things with other human beings for as little as 100 to 200,000 years and possibly as little as 55,000 years when Homo sapiens sapiens came on the planet, and that's us. Uh, so that's, you're talking about oral language oral now, language, spoken language. Spoken language, and which is a form of code. And uh, so we, there was a mutation, possibly in something called a FOXP2 gene, uh, which is present in other mammals, uh, but this uh, mutation possibly gave us the ability to have uh, this type of coded communication, which we call language. Then that's so that's getting back to oral language, right? But now we are talking about a difficulty that has arisen in, in a written language, in a secondary in form of language or a secondary symbol system that we have basically based upon our spoken our oral language. language. And that's uh, reading and writing are only uh, have been present in human beings for perhaps six to eight thousand years, and uh, occurred when. We changed over from hunter-gatherers to farmers after the recession of the last ice age about 10,000 years ago when we began farming and raising animals. And uh, people are able to support a larger population through farming than through hunter-gathering. And so that uh, uh, we saw the rise of cities and then civilizations uh, and the rise of commerce. And commerce, I gave you three bags of grain and you gave me two sheep. Uh, often requires some form of record keeping, and that was the beginning of of some kind of writing process, which began with pictographs and hieroglyphics, and then finally evolved into forms of alphabets. So you you very very uh, articulately and eruditely has have laid out kind of the evolution of both spoken language and written language, but what you're postulating here is that something has gone awry in some people where their ability to make the transition or translate the oral or spoken language into the written uh, symbol system is, is malfunctioning in some way. That's correct. Uh, reading and writing actually was a very limited skill. Uh, six, 8,000 years ago, there were only a few people uh, who were trained in writing and, and reading. And it's only the last couple of hundred years where reading and writing has become expected to be a universal skill. And yet, you know, if we think about the short duration that we've had uh, and practiced this skill, I think there are simply families that never uh, developed those skills or lack, uh, for some reason, the ability to develop these skills. And these are normally intelligent people who are normally functioning in our society, but reading and writing is simply outside their, their abilities. In the same way that some people have musical abilities, and the rest of us don't, if our survival de de uh, depended on being able to sing, some of us wouldn't survive. That's a very <laughs> interesting perspective. So basically, what you're suggesting, and others have suggested, that some kind of a deficit in the ability to process what we already know, which is our language, that we know by sound and by ability to reproduce that sound, we, we, that some of these people, some large percentage of people, have the difficulty in taking that to the level of doing it from a visual symbol system Spatial in some system, way. Yeah. And it's a form of a genetic uh, process where some of us have that skill and some of us don't, in the same way some of us can sing and some of us can't. Some of us have math abilities and some of us don't. And so I, I think of reading and writing as being one of those special skill sets that most of us have, but some of us don't. And some of the people who don't are just normally intelligent. Uh, just like the rest of us. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with pediatrician Dr. George Starr. We're talking about dyslexia. Well, I guess the question here is, well, let me just give you a little sidebar question. How is this type of difficulty with reading and writing? Is it the same or different than the problem we see in with reading failure in areas of either high poverty or poor, ineffective schools? Uh, I think they're different uh, problems. Uh, here, uh, with children with dyslexia, even when there's early reading uh, experiences with, uh, 
with families and in schools, these children still have difficulty with the reading process. But in high poverty areas where parents don't feel they have the ability or don't take the time to read to their kids early on, these kids lack the experience of exposure to language in, in, uh, in spoken and written form, and so they often will have difficulty with language in school. So you're, in your opinion, it's really a little bit of a different. One is more culturally or um, educationally developed. That's correct. Or the, the lack other, thereof. And the other is inherited. It's more of inherited and a kind of a genetic thing. So that even with thing. good exposure to reading and writing or early on, uh, some people struggle with this particular skill set. So that's my next question. So then how does all of this the existence of this inability or difficulty, how does this impact on the development of the child and how about in terms of appropriate interventions for those types of children and adults? Uh, once we recognize that a child is having difficulty with reading and writing, we need to find other ways of communicating information. Often this will be orally or visually through pictures. Uh, many of these kids are quite capable of, of very good learning. I've run into kids with very high IQs uh, who are quite capable of learning. Actually, one of the fun things to do is to punch up on Google successful dyslexics. And you'll run across a whole bunch of people, including uh, uh, Robin Williams, uh, Whoopi Goldberg, Cher the singer, David Boyce, who's a constitutional attorney, um, who else? Richard Bramson, who founded Virgin Atlantic wow. uh, Records That's quite and an Airlines. impressive list. So there are some very impressive people out there with very good skills who just have difficulty with reading and writing, and so often do their children. So your bottom line here really is that the approach to education for those types of children needs to have some flexibility. And Yes, and well that, said, yeah. And not only to try to teach them to read and write the way we read and write, but to try to find other st strategies for educating. For educating. And providing them with the information. information. Yes. And one would think today with our advanced technologies and basically multidisciplinary ways of, uh, or multi-sensory ways of getting information, and that it would be, this would be a good age to be dyslexic, one would think. I wonder if that's one actually true. Think I don't know. Uh, one of the things I often do when I'm working with medical students is ask if anybody, if they know any doctors who are dyslexic. And uh, I actually had an experience with a pediatric resident just a couple of, couple of months ago where she raised her hand and said, yeah, I'm dyslexic, and here she is, a pediatric resident. I said, did you get it from your father? She said, yes. I said, is he a businessman? She said, yes. I said, is he doing well uh, in his business? She said, yeah, very well. <laughs> so are there other experiences that you've had, not only in this case, but with children that you've taken care of over the years that you've seen that either have had positive educational responses or perhaps negative ones? I've seen both. Uh, and when we uh, understand that a child has a, uh, a reading or writing problem, a spelling problem, then we try to talk with the teachers about making allowances if, if the thought content is good in what they're writing. Even if their spelling is terrible, we try to give them credit for the thought uh, and, and the ability to put their ideas together. Uh, so it strikes me that one of the biggest messages here is to first have an accurate diagnosis or recognition of a problem as opposed to maybe just a slower uh, learning style, meaning a slower uh, acquisition of these right. skills. Family but history is critical. And one of the things I've learned to do is to ask the parents if they read for pleasure. Many parents with reading difficulty will can read for work, but they rarely ever have a book on their bedstand. And so that's one way to get at a history, a family history of reading difficulty. Uh, one of the children I saw early on was a seven-year-old girl, seven, second grade, who had problems in school, reading and writing. And I asked her parents, do you read and write? And her mom says, oh, yeah, I read a book a week. And dad says, well, I can read for work. Uh, and mom says, yeah, but you don't read it otherwise. He says, well, I'm a bus driver. I don't need to read. But there was this family history then, a genetic history of a reading difficulty that was passed on to the daughter. And once we recognized that, we were able to help make, help her school understand what her difficulty was and adjust her education. Well, I think that's kind of the key message here, is that to see it as 
rather than a quote-unquote disability, that this is a different way of learning. Or needs a different way of learning, yeah. And that clearly these children need to be understood and perhaps have compensatory strategies taught to them or then... Or and used approaches. in the education process, yeah. They are quite capable of learning, but we need to find other input methods rather than reading and writing. What systems have you observed that seem to work in your own experience? Actually, I don't. Uh, I think it's using oral information, sometimes tape recorders, uh, that kind of thing. Many children with reading disabilities will actually learn to read. It's slow, it's laborious, but sometimes they find it's actually faster than using a tape-recorded uh, uh, textbooks. So uh, usually there's there are there are workarounds, uh, and every student finds their own their own way. And I'm sure that in col- even at the at the higher education level, that there are these kids struggling. And once again, because of all the technology available these days, one would think that there would be ways of coping. But your yes. point here is that this is not a disability as much as it is a difference they've inherited. It's in not brain damage. It's the way, they've, the way they process information. The way they process information. And our expectations and culturally. Our cultural expectations. Do you need to read and write if you grow up in the jungles of South America? <laughs> no. You know, yeah. reading and writing is, is a highly technical type of process in highly developed societies. Yeah. And only 200... Uh, of the languages on this planet out of 6,000 have a written component. So it's uh, not a very common type of thing. Uh, There's a a, a language person, John McWhorter, who talks about writing being an artifice. Very interesting. Very interesting perspective. I I appreciate it very much. Thanks for coming in. Very enlightening. My guest has been Dr. George Starr, Emeritus Clinical Professor of Pediatrics at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. And now for some expert advice from the experts at Upstate. Emergency physician William Paolo is here to explain what to do and what to be concerned about if an older friend or loved one falls. In the emergency department, we see a lot of individuals who fall. And this becomes particularly worrisome when it is an elderly individual because there are a lot more injuries that one can have as one is elderly. Not to mention the multiple different drugs that can actually cause worsening of the symptoms of the fall. So the first thing you want to do if you encounter an elderly individual who fell is talk to them. Find out if they're in pain and if they are in pain, where they're in pain. We always worry about things like hip fractures. We worry about things like cervical spine fractures, which are fractures of the neck. Now, in many individuals, and if you are a 24-year-old male and you fall, you probably don't worry about this as much. You have to have a significant mechanism. I mean by that you have to fall off a roof. You have to be in a car accident. But elderly individuals, due to high rates of low bone density from diseases like osteoporosis and the different medications they're on, can have fractures just from a simple fall from standing. So the first thing we want to do is talk to them and see if they're in pain. The other thing to note is that sometimes, because when you get older, your nerves don't function as well, the pain may not be as apparent as it would be to you if you are having the same type of symptom. So try not to move as best as possible. Wait if there are in pain for the EMS providers who can stabilize fractures, stabilize cervical spines before you move them. The other thing to note is that not moving is also a problem. If your elderly friend or loved one has fallen in their home and they can't move for a period of time because of pain, this is worrisome as well. We like to get to them because sitting in a dependent position against gravity can cause muscle tissue to break down. And this is something that we worry about. So if you haven't heard from an elderly friend for a period of time, it's always good to call and check in. And if you don't hear from them, I start to get worried. The final thing to note is that a lot of individuals are on blood thinners when they get older. Aspirin, Coumadin, Plavix, and all of these medications can make bleeding much easier. So a little bump on the head, while it might not be concerning, again, in that 24-year-old male we talked about earlier, really worries me if you're a 78-year-old and you're on Coumadin. And it necessitates a lot more in the emergency department. So the first thing I do when I see somebody who fell is I talk to them and ask them what hurts. The second thing I do is find out if they're on anything that can make their bleeding, uh, make their fall more worrisome like Coumadin or a blood thinner. And then the third thing I would do if I was first responding to that is I would call EMS and try to get some help with stabilizing a person before they moved. And the final thing, if I haven't heard from somebody in a while, I often worry that they can't move and I go and I check on them. Next, can your job give you cancer? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air.
With Labor Day fast approaching and many people returning to work from their summer vacations, we know that many workplaces may harbor carcinogens and that long-term exposure might place one at risk for developing cancer. But can your job actually give you cancer? Here is an encore of an interview we did earlier to get some answers. Dr. Michael Lacks is a professor of family medicine and the medical director of the Occupational Health Clinical Center at Upstate Medical University. And Dr. Gerald Abraham is professor of pathology and the medical director of the Environmental and Occupational Pathology Unit at Upstate Medical University. So, um, Dr. Lacks, let me start with you. So your job can actually give you cancer? Tell us about that. Sure. I mean, there's a lot of things uh, that people are exposed to in the workplace, and uh, it's known that a number of them can uh, are linked to increased risk of cancer. And there's a lot of other substances where it's uh, it's possible or probable that there's a link, but there's just not enough evidence to make it make it definitive. Do we know what percentage at this point of work-related? You know, cancer is work-related? Yeah, people have been arguing about that since the early 80s. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, debating that on a lot of levels. But so there's a, there's a number of studies that uh, were done. The estimates range from lows around 4% to highs more around 10 or 12%. But the, really the big uh, three cancers that are known in the United States to be related to work are uh, lung cancer, maybe as much as 25%. Um, bladder cancer and uh, mesothelioma, which is asbestos-related. Uh, so when we talk about those three, give us an example of, of how and where you might contract those things. What kinds of occupations would lead you to any of those three? Yeah, well, th you know, in terms of uh, lung cancer, it sort of um, intuitively makes sense that lung cancer might be uh, one of the cancers most uh, at risk for people who are working because a lot of materials are inhaled and they're deposited directly onto the lung tissue, so they have a chance to react with it. So, you know, asbestos uh, is probably the best known and, and uh, the most common sort of carcinogen that people are continue to be exposed to, even though people may think uh, that this is something that disappeared in the United States a long time ago. People continue to be exposed to asbestos. Now, why is that, though? Because I understand that there's all these asbestos containment programs where if you find there's asbestos in a building, you kind of stay away or you do things to mitigate exposure. Well, I think it's a couple things. I mean, one thing is that people get exposed unknowingly so that, uh, for example, they don't expect it. So they go into a building, for example, say you're a telephone worker or a computer person, you're running wires into a commercial building that's kind of old, and there's asbestos in the spaces where they're running those wires in. You know, they're getting exposed that way. So it's kind of unexpected. Um, on the other hand, there are people who are doing uh, asbestos uh, directly. They know they're working with asbestos, asbestos abatement, and they're just not doing the job uh, correctly. I mean, here in Syracuse, a few years ago, there was a father and son team that were convicted of uh, and sent to prison for 20 years for, for running an asbestos abatement company that was uh, basically exposing all their workers and then everybody who came into the building afterward to to a, the bad job that they were doing. So oh, that's horrible. Yeah. So you said two other, there were two other types of diseases also. You mentioned bladder cancer and then mesothe mesothelioma. Right. So just briefly, where would your exposure be to bladder cancer? Oh, bladder cancer has been known for quite a long time because, again, it's an organ that makes uh, sort of intuitive sense as a, as a target organ for a lot of different uh, carcinogens because it's sort of like a, a reservoir for urine. In the urine, a lot of uh, toxic, toxic materials are excreted uh, that way, so they have a chance to sort of sit there and, and, and expose the bladder to it. And so, you know, dyes are a well-known uh, one. One that we've uh, dealt with recently is uh, with coal tar pitch, which is uh, found, for example, in uh, aluminum smelters and other, other places. And the last one, mesothelioma, that's also to do with asbestos yeah, exposure. Mesothelioma <laughs> is a rare, rare cancer um, that um, is uh, linked to pr pretty much one particular exposure, which is asbestos, and really um, there's no other known exposure that causes it. <clears throat> Dr. Abraham, why then is this so important in terms of understanding, you know, what cancers are work-related? What's, what's the significance? I mean, it seems self-evident, but in your mind, what's the significance? Well, it's, it's really important. I, just, I wanted to pick up on a couple of things that, that you mentioned and that, that Dr. Lax mentioned also. Um, it's really important because when an individual is diagnosed with cancer, then usually that diagnosis is made by the surgeon doing a biopsy and sending it to a pathologist, and then the pathologist is responsible for, for properly 
identifying and classifying that cancer. The pathologists also need to be sensitive that when, the, when they receive a biopsy, sometimes there's evidence in that biopsy besides the cancer. For example, if someone has a lung surgery for a cancer, there's a lung tissue involved as well in that surgery, and often it has clues that a person has had exposure to things like asbestos or other dusts and things like that that a pathologist can identify. So it's really important for the pathologists to be aware of this and for the clinicians and the patients to say, well, is there any clue in there? What, what evidence is there of exposures I might not have remembered? And it also leads into uh, the importance of the physicians collecting a very thorough history of the occupational exposures and even residential exposures that that person has had throughout their entire life, not just during the few weeks before their surgery. Sometimes you'll see in the medical charts under the little heading of occupation, it may say retired, and it, that's all it says about a person's occupation. So as physicians, we're generally doing a poor job of collecting occupational information unless the people see somebody like Dr. Lacks who takes a thorough occupational history. Now, the, the reason it's important to identify these things is not only for that person. Once you have the cancer, it's very unlikely that knowing that it's related to your occupation will affect how it's treated, but it's really important for the individual because they may be eligible for some compensation, and if it's work-related, the uh, responsibility of different insurance plans comes into effect. If it's work-related, for example, it may be that they should have it covered by workers' compensation insurance rather than their regular medical insurance, and sometimes the medical regular insurers battle with workers' comp for who's responsible trying to put the cost onto the other one. Uh, also, when it, if it's identified that a certain workplace can cause exposures that result in cancer, it's very important for the other workers at that place to be notified and to prevent further exposure. And, and the most far-ranging thing is if there's a new exposure that hasn't previously been recognized to be related to a cancer or any other disease, is that prevention of exposure by better regulation can follow from the proper identification. And, and as the other couple of things you mentioned earlier on was that about long-term exposures resulting in cancers, and that's especially relevant to the disease which, that Dr. Lax and you talked about a minute ago about mesothelioma, which is a rare cancer in the general population. Maybe one or two cases of this cancer per million people in the population per year will get this if they haven't had asbestos exposure that's recognized. Whereas in, in a heavily exposed asbestos workers, you may have 10 or more percent of the people followed for their lifetime that die of this disease. So anybody can do some calculations to see that's a great increase from one or two per million to 10% of the people. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen here with Drs. Michael Lax and Dr. Ger Gerard um, <clears throat> Abraham, excuse me, and we're talking about workplace carcinogens. But so obviously, Dr. Um, Abraham just elucidated very clearly why it's important to know where the cancer came from. I mean, unrelated. I mean, even beyond the idea of, of helping the individual with insurance coverage to know if we can actually mitigate a circumstance where they were working or put into place regulations that would make a difference. Why currently is it so difficult? What are the roadblocks to quantifying this kind of data? Well, there's a lot of them. <laughs> you know, I think the, um, the, the United States uh, um, doesn't uh, um, do a lot of... Um, recording of uh, or documenting of uh, exposures in the sense that that uh, we're not really sure what people are exposed to in the workplace um, when when manufacturers or employers uh, want to introduce a material into the workplace they're not required to document uh, that they're doing it or that there's a health uh, necessarily it's a health problem related to, to it and um, you know we really don't document uh, people's health histories or not health histories but occupational histories during their in their course of their um, health evaluations so you know we don't have uh, when the when uh, there's no real easy mechanism uh, to do the sorts of epidemiologic studies to really gather large groups of people where we know what they've been exposed to, how much they've been exposed to, for how long, um, all in a in a common place so that you could actually do decent studies. Is someone on studying this currently, though? I mean, you always hear about OSHA, and there's so much emphasis on OSHA, you, you know, the whole idea of occupational safety 
safety and health. The concept being that we're trying at least, or at least maybe it's a name only, but we're trying to make an impact here. Yeah, but the problem is huge in the sense that, um, you know, you have something like 140,000 different substances that are in common use in industry, and about 2% of them have been tested for their carcinogenic uh, potential. So really you have uh, 98%, which we have really zero information on um, about that. So yes, people are certainly studying uh, um, sorts of um, different kinds of occupational hazards, uh, but the, the job is, is huge, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of, I think, um, in terms of studies, you, you need money, you need you need financing and backing to do the sorts of studies, and I think most of that the financing goes to sort of um, looking for things where where there's a lot that's already known, as opposed to doing more um, what you might think of as exploratory work in areas where there's not a lot that's known. But so, it's been estimated that we have between twenty four thousand and sixty thousand deaths secondary to occupational exposure of some sort. It's not all cancer, am I correct? No, it's cancer. That's all cancer. I mean, those are staggering numbers to think that there isn't more of an effort being made is, is somewhat shocking. Well, yeah, I think so. But, uh, you know, that's that's sort of the common lament of those of us who are in the field of occupational health, that worker health is something that takes uh, second place or third place or fourth place in terms of national priorities and national attention. I mean, if you just look at it from a funding perspective, you look at OSHA which and NIOSH, which are the sort of flip sides of a coin. OSHA regulates uh, workplace uh, workplaces and set standards. NIOSH, which is with the CDC-affiliated uh, um, uh, organization, um, really does the research and uh, or, or funds research that then provides the information for OSHA to make uh, regulations. And, you know, the amount of funding uh, they receive relative to other agencies involved in environmental safety and consumer safety and other a bunch of other agencies, really very tiny. So worker health is, yeah, I think is even though the exposures to workers are uh, in most cases are, are orders of magnitude higher than what people experience in the environment, the amount of resources that go into studying it, looking at it, preventing it are really quite small. So, I mean, what if you are an, a, a worker and you're listening to this out there, two things, I guess, two questions I have is, what do you recommend someone do in terms of either evaluating their particular workplace? Is there some way they can get garner information, gather information in terms of their exposure? That's number one. And number two, um, what if you're diagnosed with a cancer and does it affect your treatment in any way? You know, or or let's say you you can still continue to work in that environment. What should you be doing proactively to protect yourself? Well, I guess there's there's uh, two levels of uh, prevention that we're talking about. There's uh, primary prevention and there's secondary uh, prevention. Secondary prevention um, is uh, for somebody who's been exposed. Are there tests that can be done to actually predict or see if they have an, uh, a propensity or possibly the cancer developing? And those those opportunities are pretty limited. But low dose CT scanning is one that shows some promise for lung cancer. Um, but uh, on the other hand, I think uh, the main emphasis should be on primary prevention, which is the, the reduction of and elimination of carcinogenic exposures in the workplace. And yes, workers have rights in terms of right to know what they, they uh, work with, um, and there's now with the internet and things, there's a lot of opportunities for them to sort of um, figure that out a bit more. But the problem comes with, okay, once they figured it out, what can they, what can they do about it? And that's the more difficult, uh, difficult question. But the point is, they should be in some way trying to determine if their workplace is carcinogenic and if it is, what they can be doing to protect themselves, obviously, because you don't want to end up with the cancer and then having to basically deal with all the sequelae of that. That's correct. If if time allows, I could give you just one quick anecdote. Just this morning on my way to work, I drove past an area where they were doing some road construction that people were using heavy equipment to tear up the blacktop asphalt paving heating it up, grinding it up, and it was a very dusty operation. There were clouds of smoke coming out of the machines, and the operators of the machines were just sitting there in the smoke without any protection whatsoever, and the chemicals in asphalt include hydrocarbons and things like that that are known carcinogens, yet there are regulations, but they're not being enforced. So if the workers aren't informed or their foreman says, well, that's too much trouble to provide adequate respiratory protection, there's a flaw, obviously, as Dr. Lax was talking about, in the funding for OSHA to do the inspections and regulations of these things, and in the employer supervising it for not 
paying attention to that, but ultimately they're responsible. So it continues to be a real issue, obviously, especially with the numbers you've quoted. Well, I want to thank you for both coming in and at least highlighting the importance of this kind of thing. And hopefully if people are listening and are in an environment where they have some concerns about the amount of carcinogens they may be exposed to, that maybe they'll take some proactive efforts to protect themselves. Thanks so much again. Um, my guests have been Dr. Michael Lax. He's the um, he is a professor in the Department of Family Medicine. He's also the medical director of the Occupational Health Clinical Center at Upstate Medical University. And Dr. Gerald Abraham, professor of pathology and director of the environment of environmental and occupational pathology at Upstate Medical University. Thanks again for coming in. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Leah Givens is a physician who knows the pain of migraines both personally and scientifically. Here is an excerpt from her essay, Chasing April's Rivers. Winter whimpers, spring insists. The wind outside, a wash of whistles calling no one home. Birds settle in like sleepy children as the sun tells its nightly mesmerizing story of dying then coming to life again. It's a comfort, the covers pulled up over closing eyes. I haven't been outside today. For some people, that's heresy. No work, no walk, no class, no coffee shop. Unthinkable. To jail oneself within these walls? My muscles don't appreciate it either, giving in to laxity as the hours pass. My skin shivers and begs to bask. But my eyes, my eyes say, stay away from that abusive light. The source of all life is the source of pain. It sprouts in a spot above my right eye, a slight swelling of tissue that might not be visible to anyone but me. My fingers search and press instinctively as though I were bleeding. Most often the ache guides me to the notch in bone hiding beneath my eyebrow. A nerve courses through there, I've learned, a narrow yet forceful river. One feeds each eye. My left may stand relatively protected, but it isn't immune to destructive flooding. By what? That's the question. Here, the hardest-earned knowledge dissolves. Pure pain pulls you back, long past your college days, to the years when true words were just feelings and a syllable had to do. You massage that spot, turgid and hot, and dream of a razor blade for a quick incision. Goo. Goo is what would be extruded. A blighted cousin of the ancient Greek humors. Not pus, nothing infectious, but some similarly dense substance, black like motor oil. Ah, that's what's been ailing you, the surgeon would say. Too much melancholy living in your head. Some bodies are sensitive. You'd nod, feigning understanding. Those aren't modern scientific words of chemicals and nerves, but modern medicine barely knows better, not for sure. The next night inches through the blinds, the nauseating pine sap is back, pooling in that same hollow, mental messages stick and fail to transmit, another night of no writing, the mind-clearing hike, learning as I go and leaving a marker behind. This time I refuse. To give in, to deepen my human-shaped crater in bed, almost impossible now without a pill or two. As I swallow, I'm grateful to medication for patting this brain-made stabbing. The drug calms the throbbing, but take it too often, I've been warned, and headaches will boomerang, slapping back harder than before. Besides, I'd never have the doses I'd need to tame each of the many migraines. This night is quiet, as far as I can tell, given the muted whooshing in my head. Again, I open the window, hoping for a cool blanket of air. The cat races to the sill to listen for any tucked or fluttering feathers. Minutes pass before a siren flies by, an ambulance in the distance. The body flies to the toilet before I know it. Not you, oh yes, you. Sudden, unexpected vomit, the detested guest of migraine brain. Lentils, not pretty. Ah, well, I'm better than I would be in the 19th century. Survival of the fittest, I shudder at the thought. 
Modern medicine, I admit, has changed the game. It's hard to remain convinced while my stomach threatens to expel the rest of dinner. The night is black, closer to day, and no sleep of which to speak. As I lie down, the cat bounds in beside me, licking my skin rapid fire like this is some great adventure. I pull the sheet over my head, not now. Plop, she flops near the edge of the bed, as if instantly exhausted. I peek out and laugh, despite the ache. She may not speak, but she teaches. When you feel like dying, something or someone brings you back to life. for joining us for Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we take another look at sports-related concussions and what you need to know. Plus, how high-risk AIDS patients are helping to fight the spread of their disease. If you'd like to listen again to tonight's show, you can find a podcast of it on our website. That's HealthLinkOnAir, that's all one word, dot org. And to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can find us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, or check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu slash what's up. HealthLink on Air is directed by Amber Smith and produced by Steve Marks, with sound engineers John Miller and Gerard Roy. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>